welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another DIFF podcast. And today is my great pleasure to introduce one of the most significant people I have ever met, Robert Sinclair, who, apart from heading up Amy and being an industry legend, is also the winner of the British Mortgage Award Lifetime Achievement, and deservedly so. Robert grew up about half a mile from where train spotting was created. And his doctor was the first in the UK to give clean needles to drug addicts. He grew up in an area where many were not given a proper chance in life, but he wasn't one of those. His parents ensured that he had a great education. He's been involved in sport for a lot of his life, playing rugby to a very high level, representing Scotland at the Commonwealth Games, and has the spiritual benefit of being a Manchester United fan. So, Robert, welcome to your first DIFF podcast. Could I just ask you, as we're going to be reflecting on your DNI journey, what was financial services like when you first joined it? When did you join it? What kind of behaviours, in retrospect, did you see that weren't appropriate? So I joined financial services in 1978 in Midland Bank in Hartlepool, which was a very patriarchal organisation where... You had to toe the line, behave, turn up wearing the right clothes, speak the right way. And it was predominantly an organisation where men ran it and women did all the hard work. And it was fascinating to join that type of organisation, a place called Hartlepool in the northeast of England, which, of course, is in a, was a very interesting space where it still had a harbour and fishing boats coming in and out of it, and they landed fish still in those days, but also had right beside it the largest underwater, underground storage tanks for oil as it was being brought in out of the North Sea, and also had a nuclear power station just down the road, and very large steelworks as well. So it was a very hard area to go and work in. But Mr Martin, who was the, the manager of the branch, ran it with an iron fist, and everybody had to call him Mr. Martin, and most people who were managers were misters. I reneged quite a lot, given my character, and tried to break the mould quite a lot. I remember being sent to wash the windows in the sub-branch after I'd won a battle about I didn't have to, because I was a graduate entrant, I didn't have to sit on the branch holiday list because I was a supernumerary in the branch. So I won that argument. I was allowed to take my holidays when I wanted, but then got sent to wash the subbrush windows as my punishment for winning the argument. So that taught me a lot about you can win an argument, but you, well, you can win a war, but you lose the battle sometimes. And you have to think about battles, not wars. And get that right is quite complex. But I joined an organisation that was still very patriarchal, looked after you. They chose where you went to work. They sent you where they wanted to send you. I was moved around the country regularly. And it was a very strange place to be. I had a very 
different view of the world in, the, in those days in the in the eighties because we were still in the era of pre Thatcher when I first started work and I was around Sheffield and and Orgreave when the the big fights were going on and parking the fact that it was probably an all white environment at that particular time. Was there sort of almost built in, because you mentioned women did all the hard work, was there sort of like a baked in misogyny? Was there a culture of inappropriate banter and and, and that kind of thing, as seems to be the case in many organisations of that period? It's interesting. I didn't identify it as such then, because it was just the norm. And I think that's one of the challenges we have looking through the lens of history behaviour which now looks perverse and you go back and look at old television programmes or old comedy programmes and that baked in racism and misogyny which existed but it wasn't in that space and it certainly wasn't in that space in my head because I came from a very different place in growing up because my mother was the first woman appointed to the Sports Council of the United Kingdom by Dennis Howell when Labour were in power so I'd never seen in my life that women couldn't rise to positions of influence. But I became clear in work that it was much harder for women to achieve positions of influence because of the fact that they were just not given the same opportunities as men in the system. There was a point where in Middlebank we tried to break that and we promoted a whole series of women into more senior positions rapidly. And it was really strange because we then watched them fail because we didn't give them the right support and infrastructure. And then the men said, well, clearly the experiment has failed and therefore it's only men can do these jobs. But I looked back at it and, and, and even in the middle of it, there were some of my friends who struggled with these jobs. And two of them had nervous breakdowns in the middle of this because they were being asked to do things without the right background experience. And to be fair, actually, many of the men wanted them to fail and were actually driving them to fail as opposed to supporting them, which is, I think, the biggest change I've seen culturally in many organisations, particularly in the last decade, where structures are put in place to help people now succeed as opposed to how people having to survive on their... Meritocracy is an interesting thing because people who talk about a pure meritocracy don't understand that actually you only get the best out of people by helping, not leaving them to sink or swim. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, I always think, and I think you're absolutely right, one of the great problems I think that British business has always had is if you're really good at your job, whether it's sales, so if you're a great salesperson or if you're a great advisor, you're promoted into a management role, which you've never had any training for, probably, and you can't possibly be any good at because you've not been trained to do that. So you're really good at one thing and then you're promoted to do something completely different. And I think that seems to happen a lot in publishing, but it is a British condition as well. It is, and something I only reconciled properly in my head when I was working at the Associated Independent Financial Advisor at IFA with, with Chris Cummings, because I did some work with somebody because I, I was struggling with certain aspects of, of understanding what motivated and drove people. And I'd come out of being very involved in sport, and what I'd seen was most of the people who are very successful in sport are very single-minded. And I see character traits of people who are very successful in sport that I don't like as character traits. I think very good salespeople are very focused on being really good salespeople and are very self-centered. And that's what makes them successful. And top sportsmen are exactly in that space, which is the ultimate dichotomy of trying to get really, really good footballers to work in a team because the two do not necessarily coalesce. But great managers manage to deliver it. And in work as well, why you would take somebody who's probably a excellent salesperson, very single-minded and focused, and think they can then manage other people when they've not got the right character traits to do it, it's, it's bonkers. Because the best salespeople are the best salespeople. They're undoubtedly, but rarely going to be the best managers. Indeed, very true. So let's move on before we get to the whole Black Lives Matter and the impact that had on our industry. You mentioned that you were an early adopter of trying to write the sort of diversity 
imbalances that were inherent in, in financial services. Tell us about what you did at First Direct and what that achieved. I was lucky enough as part of my career to do what I call greenfield site auditing. As part of a team who used to go into newly created businesses and sectors within Midland Bank HSBC Group and create the first set of audit programmes. So we, we went into lots of, the business being restructured quite a lot, but lots of new businesses. We went into the first audit programmes. And First Direct had been created and I was a leader of the team that went into the first internal audit of First Direct in Leeds. And I remember arriving there and I'd been there about two or three days and walking around the vast building, it was like a factory unit, and suddenly dawning on me that I was in Leeds, very close to Bradford, and all the faces were white. So I was out in Leeds or staying, and there was lots of faces that were not all white, but within the first direct building, they were all white. And I went to the ops director and said, Brian, why do you think this is? And he looked at me and went, good God, I hadn't thought about it. And we did a bit of research. And what came out eventually was that in the recruitment process, they were using verbal reasoning tests, which were very skewed in the way that they worked for people who spoke what I would call pure, white, educated English. And therefore, in those verbal reasoning tests, people from ethnic backgrounds were being siphoned out before they even got to an interview process. This was part of the pre-screening process. So what they did was actually go back and totally re-engineer their recruitment process so that by the time I visited again to do the second one of these audits two years later, there were a smattering of different faces around the building because they'd recognised that what they were doing was wrong. But going through that process was interesting. That it sometimes takes people to come in from the outside to look at an organisation. And it wasn't because they wanted to be like that. They just didn't recognise it in the way they were created and structured. And I think that's sometimes the importance of fresh pairs of eyes coming into organisations or structures and asking the right questions, but also being prepared to be to think about what the answers are. And that requires goodwill on both sides to get to the right place. That is interesting. I mean, one of the things we found from the work we've done with DIFF is there is no lack of willingness to embrace uh, diversity, inclusion, equity. But you're absolutely right. There is a need for some kind of analysis because willingness on its own isn't going to actually deliver the changes that are required. You need to look at the processes and see if they do need to be re-engineered. And, and I think you're absolutely spot on there. I think one of the things we're beginning to identify in the work we're doing is that we're working with a lot of people across, whether it's the, the DI groups that are working with, and I recognise it in DIFF as well. We're working with a lot of people who are in that mid to senior management range. And those people are really, really passionate about all of this. But what I still think is that at the real upper echelons of organisations, they are paying lip service to this. They're ticking the right boxes, they're saying the right things, but I'm not sure they're actually really bought in at exec management level to delivering the change that their people within their organisation actually want. And I think the biggest challenge we're probably going to have over the next three or four years is engineering how we push upwards into organisations to genuinely get the highest levels of management committed. I must agree with you. There are some exceptional leaders that are very much engaged. So, you know, the people like uh, Michelle Galanska, Ali Crosley, really committed to DIFF, really make a difference, actively involved in all aspects of delivering diversity and inclusivity and equity changes in their organisations. But that you're right, there are people who sign up, send somebody worthy to come along, but there is a lack of very senior. And I think somebody said this in a very early podcast, the minute DNI gets assigned to HR and leaves the central space of 
of the boardroom, it becomes a tick box and it immediately loses any credibility. And I think that needs to be recognised in every company that this is a central main board issue and not a departmental one. But you're absolutely right. Let's talk about a bit before we sort of like come and discuss things like behaviours that we both regret. You mentioned the fact that you met some very interesting people in your career who taught you a lot about ethnic diversity. And so talk us a bit about those people. But also, do you think if you really want to understand, you've just got to go and speak to people that don't look like you and try and understand how they think and where they come from and a bit about their culture? I think it's essential. There's all sorts of trite phrases, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, you then understand the issues they face. In the 90s, I worked with a guy called Tony St. Hill, he was a, I call him a cuboid barbadian because he was about five foot tall and five foot wide and weighed a fair deal, but he was a very good sprinter actually. But I didn't really know him from the athletic side. I knew him because I worked with him in internal audit at HSBC. But I spent a lot of time away on audits with him and, and we spent time sitting in bars or restaurants or and actually in, in, in a flat he had down on the south coast. And he taught me a lot about West Indian culture and the fact that he still went back to Barbados regularly. But also it was the first time I actually spent a lot of time with somebody who'd had to deal with both overt and passive racism all of his life. The discussions we had were really interesting because I kind of, I never saw him as anything other than a person. But what he taught me was that I am not the same as most other people because in those days, he was just a black boy and, and the level of racism he'd had to encounter to, and the amount of work he'd had to do and the, the amount of shit he'd had to swallow to get to where he got to was really, really interesting from my perspective. It was the first time I spent a lot of time with somebody who could explain it to me in language that wasn't aggressive. And I think that's the bit was really interesting with him was he wasn't bitter about it, but he wanted me to understand it. And that was a challenge. And there's another guy, an engineer I worked with a lot, three times in different parts of my time at HSBC, a guy called John Kerr, who came from the black country. Very, in an engineering background, he's, he's come from a very working class background. Got a decent degree at Birmingham University and then and joined the bank eventually through Forward Trust originally. But he eventually became the number two in the Industrial Commercial Bank of China, ICBC, which is one of the biggest banks in the world. But he also then had spent a lot of time talking to the Chinese, but also time in Beijing. And he talked to me a lot about the different Chinese view of the world and culture. And I think what's interesting is that we're presented through television and other medium a view of these things. But when you talk to people who've lived it firsthand, who you know, you get a different perspective on all of these things. And it's good to read, it's good to watch television, it's good to understand from programmes, but that is still a presentation of one person's perspective of what they want you to see and understand. And I think the more we get broader perspectives from different people with different views, with different lived experiences, and the broader we get our understanding, the more we can begin to integrate and deliver genuine equity in the way that we deal with people. And I think that the challenge is that you have to be open-minded, but you have to be prepared to step out of your own comfort zone to spend time and invest time with people in order to get that level of learning and understanding. And John, I first met John in 1983, and we still have lunch occasionally now. So, you know, so it's been a long friendship in terms of working with somebody who has always encouraged me to think differently about the world. I particularly love the phrase you use when describing John. You say, he taught me a lot about me. Yes. That's a fascinating thing to, and quite insightful thing to say about somebody and about yourself. Can you tell me a bit more about what you mean by that? You have to have people in your life that will sometimes tell you the hard truth 
about how you're presenting yourself or how other people perceive you. And you have to be prepared to take that on board and think about it. And you almost have to peel some layers of your own onion. And when you peel layers of an onion, sometimes it makes you cry. But I think only when you get into that emotional infrastructure do you begin to really understand more about yourself. I came from a very strange background where I was very reasonably educated, but I've suffered very badly from asthma and eczema as a youngster and was always kind of the runt of the litter. And achieving self-confidence to stand and speak was something I found difficult. He helped me a lot with that, which probably people will find hard to believe nowadays. But public speaking was something I really, really hated. I, I went through a stage where um, I had to do, because of the job I was doing, I didn't have enough customers, so I had to do recorded observations of my performance as an advisor. I used to throw up before I went into these camera recorded sessions. I hated the fact that somebody was going to record me and be a posterity. I, I couldn't cope with being in front of a camera. And so a lot of these things were about how talking to somebody like him, who was a close friend by that stage, about how you help yourself get through all of these things and identify the triggers that cause them and therefore finding ways to avoid the triggers that give you a degree of inner calmness that's something different. But you have to, if you're very lucky in your life, you do meet people who help you overcome some of the issues that you might have or the misperceptions you have or the perceptions of yourself, which might be totally flawed. And that, I think, was part of thinking through. It's hard to identify. Become calmer and less angry about life, I think, would be a way to describe something. I used to be very angry at everything, and I'm no longer angry in the same way. But also, I think you also go through stages in life as well, which is... As a youngster, I was very angry about lots of things and very politically motivated. But as you suddenly meet somebody, fall in love and have children, you have to begin to conform in a way that you have to live within the organizational structures that you operate in, in order to be promoted and earn money and conform. As I'm older now, and I'm no longer corralled by the same economic or social or family controls, I'm much more, I suppose, emotionally active and pushing boundaries that I probably did when I was younger, but haven't done for about 25, 30 years when I had to build a career. Fascinating. Let's move on to when the whole Black Lives Matter thing happened to our industry and the galvanising effect it had for DNI. What was happening with your member firm? So how did you perceive it affect the senior people in the industry around you? You know, people like Kevin Roberts and Martin Reynolds and, and such like. Was it really fundamental, almost shaking sort of need to change? Or was it fear? I think it's as simple as one or the other. I look at Monty as well. I look at the, the situation with Me Too movement, which was also around the same time. I think all of the Me Too, the Black Lives Matter stuff, was a catalyst to a lot of people to say, enough is enough. And I think Me Too and Black Lives Matter allowed people who probably hadn't had a voice to have just enough confidence to speak out a little bit. I think the bit that changed at that point was people like Kevin and Martin and others listened to those voices and recognised that if we don't do something now, it will be never. And that's probably not a great place for us to be as a sector within a society where I think there has to be a better recognition of a need to change. Because if we continue down a road, and that's like where America's still got significant issues, if we continue down a road where that level of racism is prevalent, particularly if there's institutional racism within police forces or other institutions of the state, you end up in a very, very bad place quite quickly. Because if you go through economic issues at the same time you've got that level of intolerance running society, you get a breakdown in society. And I think we're still at a watershed moment about which direction things go. 
because economically it's challenging and socially life is challenging. And if people who care do not stand up and are counted, you only have to go back to what happened in Germany in the 30s to see all of that. You really have to think about if the people who care don't listen and don't act, then you end up in a not good place. And that's, I think, why it, the catalyst was it started. I mean, there was other people. Well, I was at a, a Senate event down in Brooklyn, and a lady called Bevia Lockia collared me and gave me an hour and a half of her time explaining to me her perceptions of misogyny in the industry. And it's interesting where Kevin also has been through a situation where somebody was talking to him within LNG about their experiences as a woman. And he said, but I've never seen any of that. And his PA who was there laughed. What do you mean, Kevin, you've not seen any of that? It happens all the time. And I think the problem we have with all of this is it does happen all the time. But all of us have been on the bus tutting at it, not actually getting off the bus and beginning to drive the bus to engineer change. The difference now is there are a lot of us who want to engineer genuine change. And it's because this recognition that you should not walk past the things that you see that are wrong. You have to stop, you have to challenge, you have to deal with it. Otherwise, the people who are suffering it are suffering because the words are important. The people who are encountering it are suffering it and suffering is wrong in any moral code that I have. And that's suppose what's driven people like Kevin and Martin and Monty and myself to be passionate about this. And we've been really lucky because there's been other people who we've found of influence with money who are prepared to invest time and money and allow their people to invest their time that is beginning to create a real difference here. That's just wonderful in my view. I do agree with you. I think to a certain extent, you need to also do a self audit. I mean, certainly I can admit that a lot of my behaviors and certainly a lot of my language was hugely inappropriate. And I've changed that and I don't know where this, I mean, I still love swearing. I think it's a marvelous thing. And the, the, the fact that I have been given in secret Santa over the last 20 odd years at A3 and its predecessor, Three times I've been given swearing is good for you, a book as a secret Santa. I thought, well, that's telling. But I think it's more than that. I'm also a very tactile, huggy person. Not everybody is. And you change. You don't automatically now hug and kiss people when you meet them. But you need to wait and see if it's appropriate. And I think that everybody's behaviour needs to step up a gear and be a bit more considerate. But you need to start with yourself. And I'm sure everybody has behaved and, or at least said inappropriate things in their histoire. And whether it was acceptable then or not, and whether you can make excuses for it now, we need to draw a line in the sand and say, well, it isn't acceptable now. I don't think I'd ever be described as Captain Octopus. But I think I would also fall into that category of probably, I know I have fought the category of being not inappropriately touchy-feely, but certainly more touchy-feely than certain people might have wanted me to be. And I've gone back in the last 12 months in particular to a number of people to challenge myself and I suppose ask for, I don't know if it's validation or not, maybe this is a weakness in myself, but talk to certain people about, I'd like to apologise to you for what I did then. And they've looked at me kind of, all of them have looked kind of strangely and gone, what do you mean you're apologising for it? Because actually the people that are involved here are all fairly strong female characters in the industry and they're, they're actually Robert if it had been that bad we would have bloody told you I've kind of said but that doesn't excuse it because actually I looked at it now and I think I shouldn't have done that and I'm not going to do it now but I think the interesting part of that is recognition but having that conversation that says look 
I know I've probably done something wrong in the past, or I, I've not been as appropriate as I should have been. I hope I'm not getting my arse sued off me, but I actually care enough about them as individuals to go back and apologise, to say, look, if I offended you any way at any point, I am genuinely sorry. Because I think one of the things that was interesting about the Spanish football situation recently was, yeah, the guy was an arse, he did something really stupid. But instead of saying sorry, he tried to defend it. And that's the point, I think, where everybody I know, and, and, and I talked to Dom Scott and Sydney Wager about this as well, because, you know, I've grown up with, with 60 years of being inadvertently taught racism. I was brought up in a society where racism was normal. And so I say to them, look, you know, I hope you don't think I am, but if I inadvertently say stuff, I apologise. And they say to me, Robert, you will say stuff, you will never get it right all the time, but we know your heart's in the right place and we forgive you because we know you're trying to do all the right things to be in the right place on all of this. Because the fear of not saying things is too great against the fear of saying things for the right reasons and maybe getting it wrong sometimes. And the fear of inaction sometimes for fear of being called out for something also sits there for many people, I think. But I think we just have to have better grown-up, more honest conversations about all of this stuff. And the problem is when it becomes a witch hunt, everybody gets frightened. And I get that. Because I remember way back in the I mean, really interesting court case, way back in about 79 in Scotland, where a judge deemed if a woman said no three times, she had to say no three times. If you said no three times and the person carried on, then it was rape, which is an interesting judgment because there was four of us who met in the pub the Friday after that. Um, there, was, there was effectively a, a banker, a lawyer, an accountant and a teacher who had been at school together. And we all each other went, shall we just go down the nick and hand ourselves in? Because ultimately, in the world we grew up in, pushing the boundaries with your girlfriend was something you did. And the yes-no debate was something that we'd all done at some point. And it was wrong, but it didn't feel wrong because it was then normal. But that's the gap. I think there is also an element of behaviour that recognises inappropriateness, but as you say, ignores it. And I think that has to become something that's just not tolerated. And I think the new code of conduct that we've established at a three for all our events and that has been supported by Amy and Imla is a step forward. And you know, you need to see it and you need to call it out and you need to support the table hosts who are willing to say to their guests, who are probably very important business relationships, and say, you're wrong, mate, you know, on your bike, get out. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, if somebody does something that offends somebody else, they should either apologise or leave. It's pretty straightforward in my head. None of us are blameless. All of us will make mistakes sometimes. All of us will do something. Maybe this is part of it. I did sit in court, do my jury duty a while ago. And it was a case where the defence was effectively, my client has no recollection of any of this because he was drunk and under the influence of drugs. And the judge's guidance to us as a jury was, that person had volunteered to drink all of that and smoke all of that and take those drugs. Therefore, there is no defence around that. The fact that, that person had been drinking does not defend their actions. Their actions were conscious because of the irrelevance is that they were under the influence. And we were instructed as a jury to make the judgment based on them being sober, which is really interesting. And there's an assault case, and it was a pretty bad assault case, but it was interesting sitting in a jury room where people were still trying to drag that back in as a defence, despite the judge giving us very clear guidance of the rules around that. And the guy went down for seven years. I mean, it was, you know, pretty torrid in terms of, of, of what had gone on. But being under the influence is not a defence. It is not, especially at a work event where you're not meant to turn up at work drunk. So moving on to what we can do now, and I'd like to explore the role of people in senior positions who do come from underrepresented groups. Now, whether that be sort of like gender, ethnicity, social mobility, etc. And how important is the fact that they say 
things. You know, remember the example that I will give is the wonderful Esther Dextra, who, as a very strong female leader, wants to be seen to go out and say, I'm leaving early to go to my child's theatre class or music recital, so that it's seen as, hey, look, the most senior person does that, so it's okay for me to do that. That begins to sort of change culture. And, you know, and I think I've, there have been so few people in a seniorish role, and even though I've never had a senior role in mortgages, I've been very visible as a publisher of the leading mortgage publications. And I, and I, re- I regret bitterly the times when there was only me and Dev as the only brown people at a, a leadership event like the Senate. And I would say jokingly, and everybody laughed has Dev managed to get everybody their copy of the newspaper this morning? That's one of the things I regret the most because that is just pandering to a racial stereotype. And obviously, I apologise to Dev. But do you think if you are in that position, you have a greater responsibility to be seen to be yourself? I think the responsibility of leadership has changed considerably. I mean, it used to be lead a company and deliver P&L. I think if we're genuinely going to think about what leadership is about as opposed to management, management is about delivering the P&L. Leadership is about how you create a culture for people to grow and prosper. And those are two entirely different things. And it, I suppose it depends on who or what you want to be. So I think anybody who takes a leadership responsibility should think very broadly about, and the regulator in our industry has been really clear about this, and will be clearer and clearer, I think, as we go through the next few years, about the whole environmental, social, and governance issues around what's expected of people, particularly around DNI. But also, you're right, it's all the behavioural stuff around making sure that I'm not ticking the box on maternity leave or paternity leave. I'm genuinely flexible at the way people can work. I think COVID should have taught us everything around good people work really, really well working from home. People who were a bit of skivers in the office will similarly skive when they're working from home. There's nothing you can do about that. But creating a culture where genuinely people feel valued, feel rewarded, not just financially, and can grow as individuals will always, in my view, give you a better return because they will turn up to work wanting to be better as opposed to turning up to work because they have to, because they're being paid. And leadership, in those genuine terms, about building a better social structure because, let's remember, more than 50% of London is now non-white. Thinking that you can run an all-white organisation in London, you are just bonkers. Thinking you can hide behind the fact now in Darlington that, well, we've only got 3% ethnic minority in the area, therefore we've got 3%, so we're okay, is not the answer anymore because the recruitment pool, given remote working, is not Darlington anymore. We have to think about things in a different and better way about how we get the best out of people for our organisations and how we grow a society that we genuinely want our children and grandchildren to live in. Because trust me, you only have to watch children at the age of two, three, four. They don't judge other children by the colour of the skin or the way they speak. We teach them that. It's ridiculous. And so we have to go back and retrain ourselves to think about the world in a better way in order to get to better outcomes. As Dom Scott's favourite maxim is always race is a social construct. Black is a social construct. And it's very true. So where next? Where do you think we should be moving to? So let's assume we are moving in the right direction. What are the next changes you think as an industry 
we need to make to either get into the fast lane on the right road or even get onto a better road if the road we're on isn't as direct as it should be. Sometimes I think you and I are probably impatient in terms of all of this. That's probably because the fact we look at our age and think we haven't got long left to influence this. And that's a very serious construct in terms of this. But I have to also think sometimes that we actually did the initial work on the DNI viewpoint that we did in 21. We've only been working through a lot of the outputs of that in 22 and 23. We'll go back in 24 and revalidate. But in 22 and 23, we've put together a series of working groups. DIFF has been a wonderful innovation in allowing people to really, really see the broader spectrum of all the issues that there are in society, whether it's wokeism or disability or social mobility in a way that enough people had not thought about it in a way before. And that's why the power of DIFF in that is absolutely phenomenal for me. But we're on a journey. And my view is that we've done four work groups last time. We've got four work groups running again to the Amy Imla banner at the moment, and we're, going to, we're expanding stuff out. What we have now is a genuinely growing cadre of people who now feel confident enough to speak out. And Alison Houghton Corfield used a beautiful line with me. He said, Robert, I used to get invited to the party. You've invited me to dance. That is fundamentally different. Because it's one thing being accepted or tolerated in the street. It's another thing being championed and given space to be articulate and generate change. And what we're doing, Barrett, in the work that we're doing is giving people the space permission to be who they are and to allow other people to see how wonderful they are. And as long as we keep doing that and we grow that population, I don't think I've got a vision of what the end looks like. But what I have got a vision of is creating that environment where more and more people dance in a way that expresses their opinions, their emotions, their abilities, their creativity, and their desire to make this world a better place. And that's all we can do, because anything else is then still me imposing my view on them, which is wrong. I just want to give them the space to be them. Thank you, Robert. I could not agree more with you, and thank you for your kind words about DIFF. I do believe that it has done something. If nothing else, it has provided that safe space for people and the things that some of the people that have come along to the events have shared have been enormously enormously moving and certainly the menopause session and the impact that's actually had in changing many many companies policies to the betterment of all the women that work there has been phenomenal i think it's really important barrett that it's not just the fact on that it's the breadth of the issues that have been addressed there that allow people to see the breadth of the stuff that needs to be addressed here. That it's not just about gender, it's not just about race. There are a whole load of cross-cutting issues that this whole agenda needs to address. Yeah, we can pick the gender one, maybe we can just about pick it off and get it in the right place for the next 10 years. The race one's going to take longer than that, but the rest of these cannot be left on the back burner not to happen. And also, we have to always bear in mind that the intersectionality that is constantly at play, that you can't isolate gender from race and you can't isolate sort of people with non-perfect physiques to neurodiversity issues, etc. They don't just happen to white males. So we always constantly have to interconnect everything because I think it's really important. I'm really proud that in my Amy employees, I have one person who has real health issues 
and another one who has really ADHD issues. And we work around those for them to be really, really strong contributors to what we do. But indeed, I was speaking to Rob Jubb recently about the podcast I did with him, which is one of the most listened to when he came out and talked very candidly about his struggles with depression. And we both agreed where we want to get to from that perspective is... I'm not saying in any way it was easy, but Rob is a very successful chief executive and he can now say, I have suffered from this without him thinking it's going to in any way damage his career or the superb company that he's built up. Where we want to get to is a BDM or a broker in the second year of their career being able to say to their employer, listen, there are days I can't do this, I have depression, etc., without one being labelled and two thinking that is career suicide. So that's where we want to get to. If there's an ambition, you know, that from a neurodiversity perspective that we should all have, it is to have the younger people in our industry that we need fully supported when it comes to mental health. And I think we are moving towards that slowly. And anyway, Robert, thank you very, very, very much indeed. Once I have a liver transplant, we'll go out for lunch again. Thank you very much, Robert Sinclair, and let's all work together for a better future. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.